Good morning. Welcome to the house of the Lord. Those of you joining us online, good morning to you also. If you have your Bibles, please turn to the book of Acts, chapter 21, this morning. Uh, Acts chapter 21, we'll stand and read verses, 21, uh, verses 9 through 11, but we'll look at verses 1 through 16. So if you have your Bibles, please stand for the reading of God's Word. We'll take verses 10 through 13. And as we stayed many days, a certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. When he had come to us, he took Paul's belt, bound his hands and feet, and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Now when we heard these things, both we and those from that place pleaded with him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Please be seated. Upper-level Christianity, that's what we're looking at this morning. And in preparing for this, I was very, very much humbled and a sense of just inadequacy, which God responds to with, yeah, yep, do your job, just do your duty, it'd be all right. He makes all things well, he does. Anyway, this is upper-level Christianity we're discussing. There is, however, unfortunately, a, or an upper-level anti-Christianity. We want to be aware of that, be on guard against it. And it is uh, something that takes place with those who hear the gospel, grow up in a church, a good church, and then turn against the Lord. And we're not going to give up on, on those. We're not going to cave in to them either. We know what we're supposed to do. As for this man, Paul, death did not faze him. He had such a view of the throne of God in heaven that life on earth uh, just didn't mean all that to him. And so here we are, about 27 years or so after the giving of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, about 27 years after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. And the question, as we consider this section or as we consider Acts, why is Paul trekking around as much of civilization as he possibly can? Why doesn't he just stay in one place and minister and develop the saints there? Why does he repeatedly disregard the high price of physical persecution so that he could preach Christ? Well, the first reason is the love of Christ. That's what compels him. He wrote that to the Corinthians. Later, not yet, he hadn't written this letter to the Philippians yet. He had finished with the Corinthian letters. But to the Philippians, he would later write, For to me to live is Christ, to die is gain. When he wrote to the Corinthians, he said, speaking of Jesus, He died for all. That those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. This is who this man is. As we consider his letters, this is the man. This is what the Holy Spirit did through this individual. This adds much weight to the things he has to say we call Scripture. 
Again, 1 Corinthians this time. He says, For necessity is laid upon me. Yes, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. He knew what he was supposed to do, and he did it. He did it on a higher level of Christianity than most of us get to witness or to enter into. But we can benefit from it. We're not to get discouraged and say, man, this guy is on such a level, why bother? That is not the right response. The right response is, how much can I get from this and do something with it to the glory of God? And so his first motivation for trekking around civilization was the love of Christ, but also for the love of those who Jesus loved. We can't forget these kind of things because they are meaningful. He also wrote to the Philippians, But if I live on in this flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. Yet what shall I choose? I cannot tell. So I'll pause there midway through this section. He says, If I live in the flesh, it's going to be meaningful. And where he's going, he says, I don't want to live in the flesh. I want to go home to heaven. But work here has to be done. And God has assigned me work, and I'm going to do it as best I can. He continues, for I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith. This is, again, upper-level Christianity. It's not common. He reflects in his life, in these words, the attitude of God towards sin. His moving around, preaching Christ, taking the beatings and all the things that went with it. He's reflecting the attitude of God towards sin. And that is continued hostility towards sin. Because sin hurts man. God tells us that. The saints try to do their best to impress upon those who they ministered to this very foundational truth. Sin hurts humans. Sin hurts living things. All creation groans, wrote Paul. Now the keynote of the remainder of this book of Acts is centered in his bondage as a prisoner of Christ. He was never a prisoner of Rome. Rome thought he was. They were wrong about that. The Philistines, they were wrong about Samson after they captured him. They found out if they cut his hair, he would be weakened. They didn't factor in that hair growing back. And it did grow back. And he used it to the glory of God. And in so doing, he greatly lessened the tyranny and the Assaults on his own people at the hands of the Philistines. And this man, Paul, a prisoner, he wrote, actually he spoke in the last chapter to the elders at Miletus. He said, and see, now I go bound in the spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there. He didn't care. Whatever was going to happen to him in Jerusalem was not enough to keep him out of Jerusalem. Where do you get this kind of courage? He had every opportunity to back out of this. God was not forcing him to go to Jerusalem. That's what's going to come out of this section of Scripture. God was not forcing him. But God wanted him to go. 
Is this boring to you? Perhaps if it is so, because your life is lived worried about your life. You have picked things that um, will bring you down over things that will lift you up. And serving Christ exalts the soul. That's why we sing with joy. The exaltation for Christ comes from what he has done for us. Insights, they matter. Insights into Scripture, from Scripture, they matter because they influence performance. Take away the insights that the Holy Spirit gives through his preachers, and what do you have? What are you left with? Those without biblical insight are missing out. They're missing out on building a stronger faith. And if these kind of things are just, you know, history to you, boring, maybe you have plateaued. Maybe you have just flatlined now. And that zeal for your father's house is not consuming you. When they mocked the prophet Isaiah and said, who are you going to teach? Children, line upon line, precept, rule, all these, you know, insights. Isaiah did not let them stop him. He continued. Those who get nothing out of the scripture and claim Christ to be Lord, I think are living on a lower level of the faith, not at a place you want to encourage someone to be. Jude said, but you, beloved, Jude verse 20, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. Did you catch that, building yourselves up? You've got responsibility too. Don't sit there and wait for God to do everything. This life-changing moment really doesn't happen the way we want it to till we get rid of this life and we enter into that new life. And that's part of what Paul was expressing in the Philippians. It's better for me to be with Christ. That's a life-changing moment. Yeah, there are these lesser ones. When we, when we get saved, that's a huge life-changing moment. But to have those experiences, you see that a lot on the Internet, right? Life-changing speech, life-changing sermon. And they really don't. They, they may excite you for the moment, but it, it calls for more than just one particular thing. Paul seems to have laid hold on, on that very thing that changes the life. Not so much his, but those who he ministered to. And so we look now at verse 1, and he says, Luke writing, Now it came to pass... That when we had departed from them and set sail, running a straight course, we came to Kos, and the following day to Rhodes, and from there to Petara. Now Luke is documenting for us the weary and arduous labor of traveling. And in all these centuries, it's still tough. It's still difficult. Paul would have liked a direct flight. He couldn't find one at this point. He will get one, but not yet. It wasn't available. But what makes a difference when you travel? Not only the desire to get to your destination, but your companions. And the men that were with him, remember, they're carrying a lot of money with them. They were handpicked, these men, for their faithfulness, their dedication, their trustworthiness, their loyalty. All of that wrapped into their diligence. And these are his companions. And it certainly did lessen the, the unpleasantness of traveling. 
It says they had a straight course. The winds were with them at this point. Won't always be that way. They land first in Rhodes. Now, Rhodes, not streets, uh, actually had a big statue. Not at the days of Paul, by this time gone, but at one time in her history, one of the seven wonders of the world was there. This giant ten-story statue of Apollos stood at the harbor's entrance. An earthquake toppled it. So it's about the size of the Statue of Liberty, without the, the base of the Statue of Liberty, about 100, over 100 feet. To the angels, just a Lego set. <laughs> the, the angels look at man's seven wonders and others, and nah, this is a Lego. You should see what we got up here. Anyway, coming back to this, that keeps things in perspective, does it not? Man is very impressed with himself, and there's some things to be impressed by, but to a point. Verse 2, and finding a ship sailing over to Phoenicia, we went abroad and set sail. So he manages to find his direct flight on a ship, a voyage of about 400 miles, take about five days to make. Verse 3, when we had sighted Cyprus, we passed it on the left, sailed to Syria, and landed at Tyre. From there, the ship was to unload her cargo. Interesting, he goes to Rhodes and Tyre. Phonetically, it's, it's, it's funny. <laughs> I didn't write it. I just noticed it. Anyway, so we've been considering Tyre quite a bit in our study in Isaiah, they being that maritime superpower of commerce in, in Isaiah's day, uh, not any, any longer. And they weren't that great in, in the days of Paul either, but still a shipping port. And this is now, uh, you know, they're back into the area of, of Israel. They can now walk to to Jerusalem from where they are. They won't directly, but uh, it's coming. And uh, he knew he's heading into the mouth of the lion. He had told, uh, he knew this going back to when uh, he was still in Philippi writing to the Romans. This is what he says to them. No, he doesn't know what's happening at the time he writes the Roman letter concerning Jerusalem, but he knows it's not good. And he knows he has to be there. And he writes to them, he says, Now I beg you, brethren, through the Lord Jesus Christ and through the love of the Spirit, that you strive together with me in prayers to God for me. This is a great Apostle Paul saying, I have something on my heart. And I want you to pray with me about this. He continues, he says, That I may be delivered from those in Judea who do not believe, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. These things were weighing on him. And it wasn't that he was looking for a peace about it. He wanted to complete his mission. And as he's traveling towards Jerusalem, and he stops off at Miletus to meet the pastors from Ephesus, he, you know, he goes through it with them. He gets to mainland uh, Israel now, and he's going to go through it at Caesarea. And, and everybody, everywhere he goes, Paul, they're going to get you. Coming from his own people. And they loved him, of course. How can this bore us? How can we not see the value of these things? You know, you read that section in Romans 15, Now I beg you, brethren, through the Lord Jesus Christ and through the love of the Spirit that you strive together with me. And you, you think that there's nothing going more with that. That he's just asking for prayer. No, he doesn't. He knows he might face beatings. He's had them before. He understands what it's like to take a beating for Christ on one day for maybe ten minutes and then have to heal through that process for the next few months. 
from the wounds and the shame and then go through it again because so many of these beatings were, were public beatings. And he faced them all. He looked at the job. He said, what does it call for? And then he went about fulfilling the work that was necessary. Okay, this calls for me to preach right now, even though I'm going to catch a beating or be jailed. How can this bore us? How can we not see the value of it all? How can we not place ourselves in this picture and say, that's high-level Christianity. I may not be able to get to that level, but I can grab something. I can get to some level higher than what I would have achieved had I not been exposed to these truths through God's word. He says, and landed at Tyre. We are told earlier in Acts chapter 11, verse 19, won't be able to read them all, takes too much time, but i give you the, the reference point, that after Stephen was murdered in his martyrdom, after he had gone to heaven, that the Christians suffered persecution in Jerusalem, and so they fled. They got out of there except for the apostles. And when they did so, this is one of the regions mentioned that they brought the gospel to, but they were only preaching at that point to the Jews. They were preaching Christ as Messiah to the Jews. That persecution that they fled from was spearheaded by this man, Paul, before his conversion. What are the chances that here he is, I don't know, as we mentioned, 27 years later, he goes, well, a little less than, uh, if you factor in his conversion times, about 20, 24 years later or so. Here is Paul breaking bread, worshiping, praying, being loved on by the Christians he chased up there because God saved him. Because the Christians did not cave to the persecution. They continued with their faith. Paul was the one that was converted. And may we not give up. So you may have a child, you may have a parent, you may have a co-worker, preferably pronounced Cal Orker, because <laughs> it's spelled that way. Anyway, you may have someone in your life who you think is beyond reach, and they may be. You don't know. What you are called to do is do your duty. Do your job. You pray for them if God puts them and keeps them on your heart, especially if he keeps them on your heart. I think every Christian should go to their grave with somebody on their heart because there's, there's never a shortage. It's like, huh, that's nobody to pray for. That worked out wonderfully. Everybody I know is saved. Well, they're not all going to get saved in your lifetime. That's no reason to quit. Some will. You keep at it. Don't let the... Look, discouragement is like gravel on the ground, where, if you live where gravel is. It's so easy to pick up. It's right there. You don't have to do that. <laughs> Verse 4, And finding disciples, we stayed there seven days. They told Paul through the Spirit not to go up to Jerusalem. Here we go again, right? They were warnings. They, they were warned through the Holy Spirit. They knew the Lord is putting it on my heart that this is not going to go as we would like it to go. But the prohibition was their interpretation. The Spirit was warning them that Paul would suffer persecution. He was not prohibiting Paul. 
And, uh, you know, they want Paul to be safe. They don't want him to suffer any more harm. He's no spring chicken as people go. He's been around a while. And uh, they figure, well, you know, he's paid his dues. He did not agree with that. He felt his dues was due monthly. You could say it that way. Uh, the Greek really brings this out, I think, a little bit better than the translators have opted to give it in the New King James and the Old King James also. Either way, the Greek uh, says really that, Paul, you should not go to Jerusalem rather than you must not go to Jerusalem as the Spirit's leading them. The Spirit uh, told them trouble's coming. Paul, back in chapter 20, we should read it, uh, Acts chapter 20, verse 22, uh, we find that uh, Paul knew that God was leading him there. And see now, I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. Interesting. Agabus will only confirm what Paul says and really won't be uh, bringing anything new to him, though the other the spectators will be new to them. Paul continues, But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy. Now here it comes, the part that connects him to Jerusalem in spite of the suffering. And the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. That's my job to get to Jerusalem to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. God told me when I was converted, Paul could have said, that I'm going to suffer a lot of things for the gospel. And he sent Ananias to tell him that. And that's in Acts chapter 9, verses 15 and 16. And so he knew what was coming, and he was good with that. And, uh, you know, he, he could, he must not heed their advice when he was so sure of what God was telling him. Uh, you know, Nehemiah was probably one of the best leaders in, in the scriptures that we have. A man who just did not suffer fools. Uh, he, he could work with those who were weak, but he did not suffer fools. Uh, very intolerant of things that were way wrong. And at one point, you know, he was so successful, that we got to find a way to kill this guy. Maybe we could just tell him, they're trying to kill you, Nehemiah. Come to us and let's talk about this. And, uh, you know, flee the city, run away. And his response in Nehemiah 6.11, one that I've tried to live up to, but it's hard. He said, shall a man such as I flee? Well, that's Paul. Paul said, his, his, uh, shall a man that has been told by the Lord to go preach this ministry of the gospel, should I flee? No, I won't do it. And he's certainly a different type of character than Nehemiah. And he'll get to his response in a minute. But God is putting on display through this entire event for all the believers what upper-level Christianity looks like. Now, Paul's not the only one. Peter's going to go to his grave on an upside-down cross. He's not the only one. He's not the only martyr. But he's the one, it's the one story that God chose to center on. And here it is, being paraded before the believers. This is how you do it. The honest response to this is, I don't think I can do that. Well, you can't, but the Spirit of God can in you. They saw Paul's life at risk, but Paul saw souls at risk of being damned without the cross of Christ. And we would think that... uh, 
Well, what awaited him was having suffered so much from unbelieving Jews, unbelieving Gentiles, and make-believing Christians, and even some shallow, true Christians. After putting up with all of that, he is still going. He's not discouraged. Zeal for his Father's will has not cooled. I keep repeating myself, but it's to me it's stark. Upper-level Christianity. I want that to haunt me sometimes. I want that to be to when I feel like, you know what, I'm just tired or I'm fed up with this or this and that. And it comes into my mind. There is an upper level of Christianity available to me. And I can avail myself of it. I don't know how much of it I can do, but I know some of it is available. And that alone scares hell. Hell wants no progress in the life of the believer because they're afraid of it. God might use it to save a soul, to encourage a believer. Years ago, in a vision, the Lord told Paul to flee from Jerusalem. Now, and now he's just giving him a heads up what waits there for him. Now, there are those that will come to you and say, God has a word from me to you. All your caution lights need to light up at that point. Now, yeah, there is a word in season, but it usually doesn't come this way. I'll give you an example. What if... What if some, and I, um, this is, I'm speaking this one from experience in ministry in New York, two times that, rem, I, that stood out where there was uh, two different women, uh, different men, different situations. They told the man, uh, God has told me that you're going to marry me. It was nothing, not even close. I mean, it was just not going to happen. They had no right. They were delu- delusional on this issue. But imagine if it worked that way. God told me, therefore you have to. God told me you should, you're not to go to Jerusalem. No, that's not how it works. He has to tell me. You can support it. You can come by and say, you know, see what the Lord is impressing upon me, that you shouldn't do this. You can do that. That's far different from saying, thus says the Lord. And so this is what Paul is facing. He's got these folks saying, Paul, don't do it. But he knows what God told him. And he will not let them overrule that conviction. At that point, so many Christians cave. They cave to the influence of friends. They cave to the influence of those who genuinely loved them. Paul was genuinely loved. They meant well. So did Peter when he insisted Christ avoid the cross. And what did he get? Christ called him Satan. (laughs) That's what he got. Get behind me, Satan. You're not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of men. Well, this is a little different. You know, Peter needed to be called out there. He had some other issues. I'll never forsake you. And Jesus said, well, I'm going to take the chance to clean your clock on that one. Here it's a little different. They they didn't have, they, they they weren't struggling with the pride that Peter was struggling with at that time. And here, again, Paul's going to take this financial gift to the church in Jerusalem. I'll point out again when we get there, we we never read about them saying thank you. There were, two peop- there were two groups in Jerusalem that he had, of Christian groups he had to deal with. The regular people, they were grateful. Then the leadership, they weren't so grateful. Now the leaders are supposed to be a little bit more cautious than everybody, more discerning, but that's not what's going to happen. And we'll get to that uh, as, as we continue through Acts in, in later sessions if we're still here. Well, uh, in verse 5, we continue... And when we had come to the end of those days, we departed and went on our way. 
And they all accompanied us with wives and children till we were out of the city and knelt down on the shore and prayed. All right, they're not in church, but as, as churchgoers, righteous churchgoers, they're going to walk uh, Paul to the, to the beach and uh, so where he can take his next ship to, to um, close in on Jerusalem. Here is a fun fact, you could say. The word love does not show up in the book of Acts. Not one time. But the fact of it. The fact. And that's what God is after. The fact, its presence, love and action is demonstrated throughout the book. You cannot escape the love. And here it is here. They're going to walk out to him. They, they've already pleaded with him not to face Jerusalem. They're going to go with him as far as they can go. And then they're all going to kneel down at the beach. The little toddler's going to learn that this is what we do as believers. And it's quite a moving little passage of scripture, is it not? Praying for him as he asked the Roman Christians to pray for him for his trek to Jerusalem they're doing it. Not that the Romans were negligent and did not. But we're seeing them actually do it. God always has others. Elijah had to learn that. I'm the only one, Lord. They've all forsaken you. Now, by the way, I love how God he, he finishes up with Elijah, Elijah. And then he gets back and says, oh, oh by the way, I've got 7,000 others. Count them. 7,000 others who have not bowed the knee to bow. What do you think about that, smarty pants? <laughs> you didn't say that, but I, I think I could have been a good spokesman for the Lord at some times. And as I was joking with the pastors, you know, we talk about Elijah. Uh, you know, we can't call fire down on people. But we can, maybe, maybe God will allow me one day to call maple syrup down on somebody. You know, just hit them. <laughs> it was a lot funnier when I was talking with them. Uh, anyway, I, yeah, I, I said, Lord, I'm going to get this in some way. But um, it, it flopped. Going back to the Bible now, where it is safe. Verse 6. And yeah, you'll be thinking about that next time a bad driver comes your way, call me, calling maple syrup on him. I'm still trying to force it, I know. Verse 6. When we had taken our leave of one another, we boarded the ship, and they returned home. And when we had finished our voyage from Tyre, we came to Ptolemaeus, greeted the brethren... And stayed with them one day. Now notice the pronouns are we, uh, the we part. Luke is with them. Verse 8. On the next day, we who were Paul's companions departed and came to Caesarea and entered the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. Now the way this reads in verse 8, on the next day, we who were Paul's companions, departed. It sounds like they, they departed from Paul. See, the Bible does this. You've got to keep everything in context. You've got a little, says, okay, what's happening? Well, verse 11 tells us Paul is still with them. And I just point that out. Because, again, in Old and New Testament, there are things like this, and you can, you can misunderstand what's going on if you uh, disconnect the context from what is, what is taking place. Anyway... Uh, this is a major seaport in Israel, uh, Ptolemaeus. Uh, Herod the Butcher established this seaport. Now, I, I have a problem with saying Alexander the Great, Herod the Great. These guys weren't great. And especially Herod, the one that had the babies killed at Bethlehem. Well, he's a great monster. 
I prefer Herod the Butcher, though I'm not going to change the history books. Uh, that's who he was. Uh, he did a lot of building and works like that. Uh, years ago, of course, Peter was in this region in the house of Cornelius, and in his sermon, the Holy Spirit fell upon them while, while, while uh, Peter preached. The house of Philip. Again, 20 years ago, over 20 years ago, Philip and Paul were on opposite sides. And now they're in communion with each other. Doesn't that add to the idea of communion that we have, the table of the Lord? You sit and eat with those who would have been your enemy had they not come to Christ. And that's what we're going to see here. It mentions he is an evangelist, one who concentrates his service on reaching lost souls with the gospel. That's the work of evangelism, bringing the good news Evangelism doesn't work on those who are already believers. Um, that's where the teaching comes in, on the exhortations. Only Philip in Scripture is called an evangelist. Of course, there were others. Paul, when he writes to Timothy, much later years after this, he says, now first he sets it up. He tells him to preach the word in season and out, that Christ is the judge but there are going to be those who get tired of teaching, of the expositional teaching of the scripture, and they want their ears tickled. They want sensation. And then he says this on the heels of that. But, see that disjunction right there. But you be watchful in all things. I have to pause there again. Remember Gideon? And the Lord said, you see the ones that scoop up the water and drink and look around and scoop up the water versus those who just bury their face in the water and try to just drink it all out. One of them is paying attention to their surroundings. One of them has a mind that is on guard. When Paul says to Timothy, you be watchful. He's don't drink like a dog. And uh, as he continues, endure afflictions. <laughs> I don't want to. I do not. Is there anybody here who wants affliction? Now, it's going to come. What do you do when it comes? The best thing to do is take it. Take the pain. Uh, you know, history is loaded with people who can endure afflictions. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Do your job. But he's not saying it in that tone. He's, he loved Timothy so much. You know, he doted over Timothy. You know, now, now, when Timothy gets there, don't let anybody mess with him. <laughs> you know, he's, and Timothy is like, I got this, Paul. I mean, I've been trekking down these Roman roads by myself, and I'm fine. Not the dynamic between father and son, even into maturity, even though he's only his spiritual son. This Philip is the same one that led the Ethiopian to Christ. He is the same one that uh, was chosen by the apostles to serve with Stephen and the others as uh, faithful witnesses in the church. So here you have a man, not only has he, does he have a burden and a gift to reach the lost, a burden for the lost, a gift to reach them, but he's also serving in the church. He's not saying, it's not, I, mean, I, I do my stuff on the street corner. No, he's not saying that. He's in church. It's, it's a blessing when you have people in the church that serve, and then you have those that serve in multiple positions. And... This, this is a type of, of Philip. Uh, he was appointed a faithful servant in the church. Um, you can read about that in the earlier chapters in Acts. He says, who was one of the seven, and, and there it is from Acts chapter 6 and, and Acts chapter 8. Um, verse 9 now. 
Now, this man had four virgin daughters who prophesied. Well, these are unmarried daughters. That's the point that he's making here. Now, there's a big difference between foretelling and forthtelling. Well, to do the foretelling, the tongue has to touch the teeth to pronounce the T-H. Try it. Anyway, uh, they prophesied. They're not telling the future. That's foretelling, telling something in advance. Otherwise, why is Agabus coming down? Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll bring some of these points out. They are speaking forth the word of God. And so there are those Christians that think anytime they hear the word prophecy, it has something to do with future events. That is not biblically true. It, that is one element of prophecy. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, but he who prophesies speaks edification and exhortation and comfort to men. When you quote scripture, especially timely, in a timely way, that's the office of prophecy. Uh, one of the offices of it. Now, not as a prophet, not as in the office, but it is one of the functions of prophecy. Speaking forth God's truth from scripture as opposed to the prediction side. Joel said, and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. And this is part of that fulfillment, as it was when Peter said it at Pentecost. He pointed to this verse also. And so this is, this is right. They're very, likely, very likely this included singing. Singing is an is a element of prophecy in, in, in Scripture. When, Paul, when Saul, King Saul, before he became king, but he was chosen... He was with the prophets, and he was singing. And when he did that, they said, is not Saul amongst the prophets? Well, Saul was, <laughs> Saul was a disaster from day one. Let's, well, what's one good thing you can say about Saul? He's still not king. That's the only thing you can say. There's really nothing redeeming about his character. Anyway, uh, Ephesians chapter 5, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, Singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Uh, that is a, a function of uh, speaking forth spiritual things from the Father. A lot of folks don't want this. They want it to be something sensational. What are you supposed to do? Every day you got a prophecy, uh, thus the price of milk. You know, gasoline prices will come down next week. I mean, it's just God's not a chatterbox. Uh, anyway, there's no mention of them telling the future in this form of prophecy Predictive prophecy will be exercised when Agabus gets there. In the next verse, we'll, we'll come to that in a moment. So prophecy includes song, proclamation, prediction. That's prediction and uh, predictive prophecy is not forecasting. You're not looking at a trend and then coming up with a conclusion. You're, you have been told something. It has been imparted to you by God himself what is going to happen, and it will happen. And, and that will happen to the letter, as Agabus said it would. Uh, so you have uh, song, proclamation, exaltation, and edification. All of those fall under the umbrella of prophecy. But as I mentioned, shallow Christianity demands its thrills. If you were to stand and preach in a monotone, it would be tough to listen to over a long period of time, but if, if, if a pastor were to stand and preach monotone truth with profound insights, that would turn a lot of people who claim Christ off. 
They're waiting for him to grunt or something. Or cackle. Do something sensational for us. Uh, That is unfortunate. Jude said this. These are sensual persons who cause divisions not having the spirit. And usually when that's in practice, they consider themselves so full of the spirit they can't contain themselves. Now, I'm not saying everyone is like this or everyone who gets excited, but this element of shallowness does exist in Christendom amongst churchgoers and be on guard against it. Uh, I find truth emotionally excites me. Yes, that's it. When God gives me an insight and says, you know, they never watched Samson's hair. (laughs) That's like, yes, that's it. I love those kind of moments. I would have never come up. Thank you. By the way, uh, (laughs) it doesn't work that way. We wish it did. Lord, since I've got your attention about this other matter, uh, it doesn't happen that way. He knows better. (laughs) Anyway, verse 10. And we stayed many days. A certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Now, he's going to foretell. He had already foretold of a famine that hit Jerusalem back in Acts chapter 11. It happened just that way. Uh, Now he's prophesying, predictive prophecy of Paul's imprisonment. And it happened exactly like he said it would. They're going to arrest you. Here's the part we miss. We see the belt getting tied in the chains. The part we might miss is... Agabus said, the Jews are going to arrest you, and they're going to give you to the Gentiles. You see, you just can't. Why didn't they just kill him like they did Stephen? Because God told him what's going to happen, and God wasn't going to let them kill him like they did Stephen. And so uh, this is all good stuff. I'm, I'm excited uh, until uh, trouble comes, right? They were scrambling. Well, that's okay. Don't. Don't. Be disappointed in your faith when you are confronted with a lion and you are dealing with perplexity and fears. Don't be surprised by that. Oh, no, I should be a stronger Christian. Work it through. And those of you, if you're a Christian and you say, you know what, I know I'm a weaker Christian. Just just take confidence in this exhortation. You are a lot stronger coming under God's word than what you would have been had you not come under God's word. Don't, don't, you know, Satan wants to mess with our heads. And once he's allowed to do that, uh, it's, it doesn't come out well for us and usually others around us. Um, it, it does take some grit. And you have it. You might not think you do, but you have it. You may not, and I'm pretty sure about this, you may not have as much as Paul, but you've got some, and, and put it to use. So the more you use it, the better at it. I, I've been want, carrying this thought around for a while. Uh, Shelby Fort, who I mentioned in one of the other sessions, was a historian, a well-read historian about the letters and the exchanges of the days of the Civil War. And um, he was asked, what did the veterans of that war do about what today the shamanologists have called, well, okay, let me stop. Today it's called post-traumatic stress. And he was asked, what, have you found anything? And Shelby knew, as a boy, some of these Civil War veterans visited them, some of them double amputees, etc. And he said quite the opposite. Uh, they, they accepted it. 
They were proud of their heritage, both north and south. They were proud that they fought. Um, he said the ones that he encountered were jolly. Uh, and it was, he felt, was, even as a child, somewhat humbled by that. So it's interesting that this grit is available to human beings. But the devil comes along and tells you it's not available for you. We get tripped up with a lot of things. Maybe you preach the love of Christ, but you really doubt that Christ loves you. So you just do it. Those kind of things, that, that messes things up, does it not? Remember, Christ loves you, died for you. And, you know, just um, don't, to be honest, even Shakespeare said this above all, to thine own self be true. Don't lie to yourself. It's, it's liberating. To say, you know what, I am pretty dumb when it comes <laughs> to this or that. Maybe, you know, if someone said to me, look, I got a cal- calculus calculation for you, I would say, get away from me. <laughs> I never knew it. It's not my strong point. But calling down maple syrup on people <laughs> is something that I, I think I could, I could manage. You'll think about that later. <laughs> A harmless way of expressing your disdain for the other person is to cover them in maple syrup. <laughs> okay, here he is in verse 11. When he had, You don't know what it's like to tell good jokes and look out and see straight faces. It's awful. <laughs> when he had come, verse 11, when he had come to us, he took Paul's belt, bound his hands and feet, and said, thus says the Holy Spirit, so shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. What a dramatic illustration. Is that necessary, Agabus? Couldn't you just tell us? He said, no. Because if I illustrate it this way, you won't forget it. And if you don't forget it, when it happens, you will understand you're in the right faith. You belong to Jesus Christ. And a prophet has been among you. And you've been privileged to see this. And you've been privileged to see it, so when you preach, you can preach with that blessed assurance stuff we believe in. Instead of preaching from a position of doubt. Paul's hands and feet, they would be bound. But his heart was free forever. He wrote again to Timothy, I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even to the point of chains. But the word of God is not chained. Man, this guy was in Satan's face all the time. It's like after a while, Satan's trying to get away from him. Thus says the Holy Spirit. Now, this is, this is impressive to me. In the Old Testament, we read, thus says Yahweh, thus says the Lord. When Christ walks, he, he doesn't say, thus says the Lord, not once. He says, I say to you, because he is the Lord. <laughs> it would have been wrong for him to say it any other way. At Pentecost, after Pentecost, we read of, thus says the Holy Spirit. There in our scripture, the triune Godhead, speaks and presents itself, reveals to us the equality within the Godhead. That if the Father speaks, it includes the Son and the Holy Spirit. If the Son speaks, it includes the Father and the Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit speaks, it includes the Father, and they're indivisible. We don't have three gods. We have one God and three persons within that, that come from the Father. He says, into the hands of the Gentiles. Well, 
how else was Paul supposed to get in front of so many people? This was an excellent vehicle. He got in front of so many people because of this. In fact, God says, I'm going to lock you down in jail for a while. And while you're there, I need you to write Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. And where will we be without that Colossian letter? Let no one cheat you through the philosophies of this world. Man, you've got to love those hard-hitting jailhouse letters. Even Caesar, was, he was going to get to Caesar, and he did. And Rome was going to pay for the trip. And that's exactly what happened. He got a free bath on the way. If you can call it shipwreck that. Verse 12. Now when we heard these things, both we and those from that place pleaded with him not to go to Jerusalem. Here we go again. They did not doubt Agabus' prophecy. He said it. It's going to happen, Paul. You've got to love that. They're doing as Peter did. Full of human love. Not agape. Human love says save yourself. Agape love says, finish the job. 20, verse 13. Then Paul answered, what do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Uh, he got choked up here, no question. You can't, how do you not get choked up people loving on you like this? You know what I mean? I mean, but the word love is not there. But is that not love? Is this not full-blown agape? Love. And unfortunately, it's missing from too many churchgoers. It was missing from some in Paul's day. They harassed him. Romans 12, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Yeah, Paul, I hear you, but that's upper level. And though I want to get there, I feel like it can't. And God says, you stick with me, and if I need you to get there, I'll get you there. Paul could take no credit for any of this. You think he got to heaven? Did you see that? Did you see what I did? He, they would have pulled the lever. <laughs> Gone to the other place. Anyway, verse 14. So when he would not be persuaded, we see saying, the will of the Lord be done. Well, there it is. They, they weren't saying, okay, it was God's will that you should not go. They just That was their interpretation. So they, They're saying, fine, he, he's not going to cave in to us. As much as we want. They, could have, they saw the look on his face. They saw his heart breaking. They, they listened to his tone. He loved them back. There's a difference between stubbornness and resolve. Stubbornness is, is the flesh. That carnal nature. That's going to do what it wants to do. And really isn't too interested in what God wants. Its, it's determination is homegrown. Not heaven born. This is not what Paul was offering. Stubbornness is determined to continue the wrong course just because. Maybe you, because you, you want it so much, or maybe because you just want to stick it to somebody else. You don't want to give the satisfaction to the other person being right. You know, that's why it's so hard for some people to come and say, you know what, I was wrong. I'm sorry. Some people have a hard time with that. Well, that's the flesh. It ain't the spirit. If you're wrong, you need to own up to it. And if you get good at, at hiding your guilt, you become more of a, more of a pain. I'm, I, that's what I hear. <laughs> Resolve, on the other hand, is determination to obey. To follow the last order that you received. What the Lord has made clear enough. 
And it is a determination that is dedicated to the right course. And it will not be moved. And that's what we're seeing in Paul. Paul did as his Lord did. Acts chapter 3. Peter speaking. But those things which God foretold. There's the foretelling versus forthtelling. The things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets. That the Christ would suffer. He, the Christ, has fulfilled. And so there Peter was saying... Christ also had to face death and persecution, and he did not back away from it. He went on to finish the job, and Paul's doing the same thing. Men do not face such things for fiction. And this is about the resurrection. Christ either rose and was worthy of their death or not. These men claimed to see the risen Lord. They had every chance to say, oh, I was just kidding, to save their skin, but they could not. David wrote, happy is He whose sin is forgiven, whose sin is covered, is dangerous for hell when a man knows his sin is covered. Verse 15, and I mean man man or female, not gender specific. Verse 15, and after those days we packed and went up to Jerusalem. Interesting fact that they had their little bundle, they had suitcases, little sacks of something. Some probably had nicer ones than others. As is always the case. But is is that a Samsonite? Of course, we're Jews. We only use Samsonite. But anyhow, (laughs) yeah, you can use that. Uh, Anyhow, (laughs) God does impart things. Anyhow, they they, they packed up. It was a 50-mile trek. Reading verse 15 again, and those... After those days, we packed up and went to, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one that kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you didn't want it. You weren't willing. We face that when people say, I don't want to hear the gospel. That doesn't, that's not our cue to quit. Lie down and cry. All right, I'm going to pray for you, punk. No, no, you can't say that part. But, but you can feel it. And verse 16. Also, some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us and brought with them a certain nation of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we were to lodge. I don't know about you, but I, I'm quite disgusted by silent letters. Why put the M there? It's not necessary. Anyway, <laughs> this, oh, we're closing with this. This is incredible, I think. Uh, they're coming to Jerusalem. It's Pentecost. It's a mandatory feast for men of Israel to be in Jerusalem. It is going to be packed. Where are they going to find lodging? Who thought about that? Well, they did. That's why Nason is coming with them. Nason was with them up in Caesarea. He's coming because he owns something. He owns a place in Jerusalem. And that's where they're going to stay. Isn't that not incredible? Because when you're around poor leadership, and it's like, who planned this? Well, nobody. That's why we we have the problem. And when you plan things out, some people get irritated. We're putting too much fuss into this. Well, we've planned for you to annoy us like that. Could you go stand over there one moment? And then you pull the lever. Anyway, uh, the lodging. Uh, this uh, the, the great concern, it is satisfied in Nason, the man with the M, and the tensions would be running higher. Once they get there and settled, 
They will bring the money to the Christians, in the Jewish Christians, and then it's going to get interesting. Paul is going to make a mistake, and God is going to run to his aid to keep the mistake contained. Uh, anyway, I really enjoyed it. Let's, let's do it again. Look at Acts chapter 20. Okay, let's, let's pray. And we're going to, as the men prepare the communion, uh, I should point out, I probably get about 20, 30 reminders that it's communion Sunday. <laughs> Since I forgot one time. I appreciate the reminders, though. I, but I thought it was funny. Not having a comical morning up here. Let's, let's, let's pray. Our Father, thank you. So much information about us in your word. So many things that apply to us today. Just fly right off the pages and we see ourselves in the story. Maybe we're a nation who provides things for the body that no one else could. Or maybe we are... Um, just one of the other men that is trustworthy enough to be uh, able to carry the funds to Jerusalem. Or maybe we're one of those moms that brought her children to the beachhead there with Paul and his party to kneel down and pray in the open air for his safety and his life and his ministry. We thank you. Your word is a lamp to our feet. It is honey upon our lips, and we thank you for it. And now as we come to the communion table, Lord, may you fill our hearts with zeal for your house because of zeal for you. In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, amen.